was very important for us that we built a culture that under every circumstance we had to consider the good of what we were building relative to the financial outcomes. I'm a capitalist. Right. So don't get me wrong. Like we are driving for profits in this business, but there is a way in which you can more forcefully align the altruism and the mission with the capitalism. And so that was very much why we decided to file as a B Corp. Welcome to The Other 80. I'm Claudia Williams. This is our second episode recorded in person at the engaging, but occasionally noisy, health conference in Las Vegas. If you enjoy these episodes, please share the podcast with a friend. A couple episodes ago, I talked with Dr. Tony Eiten about his famous saying that zip code says more about your health than your genetic code. Where you live has a huge impact on your health. For example, if you're one of the 60 million people living in rural America, you might have to take a day off work to get to a doctor's appointment. That is, if you even have a doctor nearby. In rural areas, mortality rates are 23% higher than in more urban locations. That's something our guest Jenny Schneider is trying to address through her company, Homeward. They are architecting a new care model for rural America. Jenny and I talk about why she and her co-founder decided to file as a B Corp, how they use tech and non-physician providers to expand access to care, and the lessons they learned from the early rollout of Homeward in rural Minnesota. So please welcome Jenny Schneider to The Other 80. It's so great to have you on the other 80, and here we are at Health. So if for the listeners out there, if you hear a little disco music, that is not us, although we wish it was. And I'm so happy to have Jenny on today to talk about Homeward and the work that you're doing um, to address the needs of rural health and others eventually down the line. And I just wanted to start with the landscape building for the work that you do. And one of the stats that you mention often is... 23% excess mortality in rural areas. So I'd love to have you paint a picture of what's driving that. Yeah, it's a great question. And so if you think about the healthcare industry of we as we've constructed it to date, we never really built it for people that live in areas that are hard to get to or in areas that lack infrastructure. And by infrastructure, I mean things such as public transportation, I mean broadband connectivity. In fact, even cell phone towers are fewer and far between in some of the rural areas. And so a lot of the poor outcomes has to do with true access and our ability to actually get care to people and the inverse of that coin, which is what we ask of people to get care. So it's common that we'll ask people in infrastructure poor areas and rural markets to spend a full day, take a full day off to drive four hours for a 15 minute appointment for a blood pressure medication adjustment to drive four hours home and miss a whole day's worth of wage earning. It doesn't actually seem like a great decision if you're that individual person for something that you don't feel any difference or understand the outcomes. And so we've seen a system that's been designed for more dense areas And we kind of use that system and ask people in rural markets to leverage that system as well. And it just simply doesn't work. And one of the underlying drivers of that is much lower rates of provider access. You've talked about half as many primary care docs 
and eighth as many specialists. Boy, listen to that one for a minute. And you've, you have some really interesting hypotheses for how to address that, both through technology and through a different staffing model. Yeah, I think there's two key components when we think about re-architecting care delivery in rural markets. One has to do with staffing, and the other has to do with the way in which we pay for care. Um, I'm going to take the staffing one first. It's very clear that the answer cannot be simply to hire more healthcare providers in rural markets. The reason I say it's it cannot be, that cannot be the answer, is we've tried that. We've tried that before there was a healthcare provider shortage. And in a setting of a healthcare provider shortage, we're doubly hit hard in those rural markets. So the answer there has to be a combination of leveraging technology assets to actually scale services. So for most of us practicing physicians, there's a fair amount of paperwork that we still do today that doesn't actually need to be done. Or the paperwork needs to be done. It doesn't need to be done by a physician or by a practicing clinician. And so we think a lot about what technology components we can implement to take out a lot of that unnecessary workforce, a human workforce. The second is really truly allowing people to do the care that they've been trained to do. So, for example, a medical assistant can accomplish nearly 90% of what's required in an annual wellness visit. If that's true, then why do we have the most highly um, educated, most expensive resource in the form of a physician doing an annual wellness visit? So it's rethinking the care delivery, both in terms of how we deploy our people, but also the technology underpinning. So that's the workforce. The second component is really the economic alignment of incentives. And a lot of this is the buzzwords value-based care or global capitation or total capitation, where we say to somebody, look, provider, you're on the hook for delivering outcomes and we'll pay you a fixed amount. You figure out the best way to do it. It's very widely acknowledged that in rural markets, that's probably the only way we can actually get to where we want to go. Because the inverse of a value-based care arrangement is a fee-for-service where you get paid every time somebody comes back. In a fee-for-service payment model, you're not incentivized to do the preventive screening, the annual wellness exam. Those, those, those are reimbursed at a very low rate. You know, in order to keep your doors open, to run the clinic, to keep the lights on, you need to have enough volume. And with that volume, you need to have a higher incentive from a fee-for-service. So if you flip the inverse and say, look, we really want to improve outcomes, you put people under a global capitation and let them deploy the resources to drive the outcomes and then share in the economic success. So let's double down on both of those because I think they're really very nuanced questions. Put some words on the paper when it comes to technology because I think people are probably imagining all kinds of things. What do you mean by that? What? How are you using technology to expand access? Give us some examples of how you're using technology to make that work. Sure. So when we enter a market, so we come in in partnership with our payer partners and they'll say, we have X number of thousand lives in rural county Claudia. We'll, we'll use your name as Love an example. It. Right. Yeah. And we want you to manage that whole that whole population. And about on average, 70% of those patients or members have a primary care doctor. But that primary care doctor is in a fee-for-service arrangement. And we come in and say, look, we have technology assets such as billing components, such as navigation, where people could go to get medications refilled, to tap into home services that can help you understand that patient's clinical journey. Similarly, for the other 30% of people who don't have access to a primary care doctor or need to wait six months or nine months in order to get in to see a primary care doctor, 
we bring primary care doctor resources. And those resources depend on the same things. Scheduling, if you live in a really, really district, you know, sorry, uppermost northern part of Claudia County, and it's mm-hmm. really I'm imagining hard. like the UP or something. Yeah, UP is okay. a great yeah. example, okay. right? And it's really hard. It's really hard for you to come into a clinic. We actually send somebody out to you, but we have the technology component to schedule people where they need to be seen, when they need to be seen, and how they need to be seen. Similarly, we deploy remote patient monitoring, telehealth, not to everybody, but to people who need it so that we can keep an eye on people and be able to intervene without increasing the service demand for caring for those individuals. We've talked to quite a few really innovative companies that are like you driving towards a capitated payment. Eleanor Health is just one example. And I think what's central in that is the value conversation with the payer, right? And asking them to do something a little different for a population within their broader population. So take us in the room where you're talking with those payers. What are they looking for? Like what piques their interest? What outcomes do they want to see? How are those conversations going in general? So I would say the conversations in general are going incredibly well. Um, we're a small company. We've been a company for about 18 months, and I have one payer sales, and we're you know expanding into tens of thousands of members at full risk. The reason is we walk in with a conversation and say, typically starts like this, how well managed is your population living in a rural county? And the answer invariably is they're not well managed. They're very unpredictable. We can't provide the following X services. So we say, great, would you like to lock in your margin and allow us to improve quality of care off of the star metrics that you're being held accountable for your plan, as well as we'll deliver improved quality care at a lower cost? The answer is universally yes. So we've removed the risk from the payers. We can do that. We can take on the risk because we also own the levers because we go in with technology assets to wrap around the existing providers and then become a provider ourselves in that ecosystem. So the upfront quote unquote sale or relationship building or contract part with the payer is very smooth for us because we're solving not just a small niche of the population. We're not coming in and saying, We'd like for you to give us your Medicare patients who have the following conditions that we'll take risk on them. Instead, we say, we'll help you solve your population at a county level in these rural counties where there's been unpredictability. In fact, let's take a deep dive. If you've got 20 rural counties, what are the ones that you're most focused on managing? Give us that population and we'll be able to manage them for you. And I loved some examples you shared in a different podcast where you said, I used to work at Livongo, right? And the population we're talking about, people think of it as a niche, small population. It's a very large population. Yeah, right? I, jo- I jokingly <laughs> say, you know, people, when we started Livongo and we initially started in diabetes care and people said, that's amazing. It's going to be a huge business. There's 30 million people living with diabetes. It's so great that you did this nice little niche company for your next company. And I said, well, how many people do you think live in rural healthcare markets? Kind of get a blank stare. And the answer, it's double the size, the population of people with diabetes. It's 60 million people live in an area where the last three digits of their zip code designate them as being in rural market. I'd love to hear about how you're thinking about the Medicaid market. I mean, certainly we know that there's a graying of rural areas. We know that there's a lot of Medicare opportunity there. Um, What about Medicaid? How are you thinking about that in the markets you're looking at? Yeah, so we are actively thinking about it. And I say all the time, we are not a Medicare company. 
We are not um, solely a Medicare company. We take care of Medicare patients, and that's where we started. Our company mission in North Star is to re-architect healthcare delivery in rural healthcare markets. There is a disproportionate higher level of Medicare beneficiaries, Medicaid beneficiaries living in these rural markets. So it's a stepwise process for us to go into other populations or other lines of business because they require different services. So this is not a function of yes or no. This is a function of when and the the order of sequence that we'll do in order to be able to deliver on our mission, which is truly to make living in a rural market easily accessible for adequate health care so you can be in control of the outcomes. Thinking back to this this conversation with this payer who got really excited, I think the tailwinds are clear. What are some of the headwinds as you think about scaling your business? Yeah, I think that, you know, we talk a lot about our ability to do tech-enabled services. It does not mean that we've cracked the services code, right? So meaning we can get more out of our existing um, service providers. And there are, in our rural markets, where rural hospitals closures are happening, and they're happening right now at an unprecedented rate, there are people who are looking for jobs who are trained. But it does not mean it's been very easy to fill all those service providers. I think that's writ large in the healthcare industry. So that will continue to maintain a challenge for us. And I think helps push us even further in our technology platform that we're continuing to drive. The second is this idea that if we build it, they then will come. And so it's we spend a lot of time in the markets at a very, very local level, understanding the values of the population, the people we serve, and why what we're bringing to them matters and is worth receiving. You've talked a lot about the, the collaboration model you have, not competing with the local providers, but partnering with them as well as with the payer. But paint that picture for us in Michigan where you're live. What does that look like in that state? Yeah, so what that looks like is we come in with a contract to care for risk-based populations. We work with the existing providers that are boots on the ground. We give them our technology enablement services. We own the risk-bearing contract over them so the providers can continue in a fee-for-service model if they choose to. We continue to pay them, but we work with them so they can augment the care that they're giving that's required to drive total cost-of-care outcomes. Similarly, when people don't have a provider, and again, 10% of all rural counties have zero health care provider, we're there to provide primary care resources. We bring a, a number of specialty service care to help our, our primary care doctors and the existing primary care doctors. We're not doing procedures, but there's a lot that you can do in the cardiometabolic suite in terms of monitoring with some expertise there. So we're bringing that care into the community. We drive our mobile clinic around. We park in parking lots with partners that are relevant to the people that live in that exact county so people can visit us and get access to those. And we deploy our medical assistance into people's homes so they can actually start to understand, build relationships, and at a different level than when someone shows up in your clinic, truly understand the health outcomes, social determinants of health that are required to overcome in order to be able to drive those outcomes and deploy many of the virtual components that we offer. That topic of social drivers and social determinants is a a big part of what we talk about on this podcast. How are you thinking about those components within your broader model? And are those a buy or build or just kind of a refer kind of uh, model for you? Yeah, it's oftentimes starts with a refer. 
So oftentimes there are resources that are either unknown or that last mile step is not taken. So it's one thing to say, hey, there's there's food pantries in town. It's another thing to say, hey, get in my car, I'll help take you down there or I'll walk you to the food pantry. These are the hours that they're open. Those details and that last mile of care delivery really do matter. We're in a partnership model, so we are looking at the population needs in a county and looking at what is in existence in that county. You'd be surprised. I'm genuinely surprised at what exists there, but is not yet fully maximized or fully tapped into. Sometimes things don't exist and we can bring in partners, right? Or we will build. It just depends on what that population need is. But our preference is to work with existing partners and infrastructure that already exists and make sure that we're maximally and optimally using that before going to the next stage. It sounds like there's quite a intensive on the ground component. How does that affect the way you think about new markets and scaling? It is. It's, you know, when we launched the business, we hired a lot of very talented, smart people to help us launch the business and get the contracts and decide how we were going to build the solution set. Now that we have traction in a number of different markets, we've actually changed the focus and deployed most of those resources into the local markets. I'm from Minnesota, and I think I'm nothing like a Michigander, right? We're very, very different. (laughs) Joking aside, that's quite true. And so it's become very clear to us that the dialogue, the inner knowledge, the high school sports winning team, losing team, what's happening in the community is really critical for us to understand, to deploy the resources that gain the trust for the population that we're able to take care of. So what markets, what are you looking at next? Well, so far, so far, we've only publicly announced Michigan and Minnesota, and I will continue to stay with what we've so far publicly announced. We'll have to watch the news. You will. Yes. (laughs) Okay. I used to work closely with Farzad Mustashari when Alade became a B Corp. It did not surprise me, given what I know of him and the company. I was super interested to learn that you launched as a B Corp. And first, just would love to know what drove that decision. And then I have a couple questions about the implications of that. When Amar and I launched Homeward, we thought really hard about what it was we wanted to do. And we wanted to do something that was going to be bigger, bigger than Livongo. And by bigger, I don't mean dollar check size. I mean bigger in terms of bending the arc of healthcare delivery history in the right direction. Having done a nice bend, we wanted to make that arc go even further, even faster. And as part of that, when we decided on rural health, we spent a lot of time thinking about the public benefit of our solution set with the strong belief that if we stayed focused on the mission of re-architecting healthcare delivery in rural markets, that the economics would figure themselves out, we would build a company of value, but we had to stay focused on that. And having been in a variety of situations in private, public, board roles, operating roles, there's a lot of hard decisions that get made in those final moments when there's a lot of money on the table. And it was very important for us that we built a culture that under every circumstance, we had to consider the good of what we were building relative to the financial outcomes. I'm a capitalist, right? So don't get me wrong, like we are driving for profits in this business, but there is a way in which you can more forcefully align um, the, the altruism and the mission with the capitalism. And so that was very much why we decided to file as a B Corp. And how, having had these other experiences with other boards and other investors, how has that shifted the conversation with your 
investors and stakeholders. So I feel very fortunate that we are in a rare position to have raised money from people whom we deeply trust and from whom we've worked with before. And I know that that's a very privileged position. And so I, but it was clear to me that I and Amar, we wanted to work with a team of people we trusted. And trust is built over many reps. It's built over a time horizon. It's built over understanding the central mission around what you're trying to do. And so with General Catalyst, Arch, and Human Capital, we feel very strongly that we have investors that see our vision and will stay with us and understand that we're doing something big and it's worth doing um, because of the economic payback in the end, but it's not a short time turnaround. One of the experiences you talk about as a really grounding experience for your whole healthcare career is having been diagnosed as a rural adolescent with type 1 diabetes and your doctor who treated you. And I'd just love to hear a little bit about how the relationship you had with him informed and and kind of inspired your path and this company. Yeah. Well, so the um, endocrinologist that I eventually saw was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Roger Nelson. He worked for Mayo Clinic. I grew up in a town called Winona, Minnesota, and I saw our family doctor, Dr. Adeen, um, and was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as a 12-year-old in a family with no healthcare background and truly no experience or understanding of what that meant. At the time, all I heard was the word die, and I heard it repetitively, and it was the first time I had ever seen my dad cry. And I thought, the word die and my dad crying, like, this is, this is not a good thing. This is not a good thing. And I ended up in the intensive care unit for nearly a week within our small town hospital. And I did not actually get to see an endocrinologist for many weeks after the diagnosis, which, you know, I didn't know any better until I went to medical school and then found out that that is a precarious time when you're started on insulin, your body's adjusting to all sorts of things. You as the patient or the person living with diabetes have to understand how the, all these factors interplay. And so it's a time where lots of things can go wrong, really high blood sugars, really low blood sugars. It wasn't until I literally until I was in medical school and I realized that I probably should have seen an endocrinologist like day one in the hospital in an intensive care unit. We just didn't have them. I was in a rural setting and it, didn't, it did not exist. It wasn't until I was referred into Mayo Clinic weeks later that I met my endocrinologist, Dr. Roger Nelson, who um, I, he wrote a letter of recommendation for me when I graduated from college. That is how tight my relationship was with him. And it was tight because as a 12-year-old, fairly precocious individual, he let this be about me, not about my parents. And he treated me absolutely as a person. And we talked about choices that I could make and the implications of those choices. And it was never do this or do this, don't do this. It was very much when you make this choice. Things like when you decide to consume alcohol illegally before the age of 21, (laughs) you should expect this impact on your blood sugar because he was a realist and understood that I was a person. I was going to go through teenage years with friends. So rather than pretend that it didn't happen, we just addressed it. And he gave me the knowledge to understand the ramifications of my of my condition so much so that when I first met the team at Livongo, the first thing I fell in love with was this idea that we did not call people a diabetic, that we called them a person with diabetes. Because at the end of the day, none of us think of ourselves as a cancer or a hypertensive. We think of ourselves as a person who lives with something, and we all, we all have something. 
And so this idea around putting people at the center and allowing people, empowering people to make their best decision. And it may not be the best decision the doctor wants, but it may be the decision that's most important to them. But educating them so they can understand the consequences has been at the key of who I am as a physician. It's the key of what we're doing at Homeward, which is empowering people in rural markets with the knowledge and the availability to make their best decisions. It doesn't mean make them make the decision that the doctor wants them to do. It's actually give them access and allow them to make decisions so they understand the ramifications and can live and choose to live their life the way they want to live their life. Mm, that's powerful. I always close the podcast with the same question, which is, what is a leadership lesson you learned the hard way? Oh, I, I feel like most of all my learning, most of my, my time at healthcare has been about learning lessons the hard way. I think that the leadership lesson that I have learned for having not done it this way initially was the power that vulnerability brings into leadership. I think oftentimes as a leader, you feel pressure to be the smartest person in the room, to be the captain of the ship, to give direction. And I think you forget that vulnerability um, shows your humanity, your humility, and makes people want to follow you more than a commanding statement. And so this ability to be real and to share personal components, and it does you can decide the level of personal details, but to be vulnerable is a, a leadership strength and not a weakness. I've had a similar lesson, and it's a hard one to learn. It's a hard one to learn. Yes. <laughs> it's an ongoing process. For all of us. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining. It's such a pleasure, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. And nice to meet you, and thanks for coming on. Thanks for the chance to be here, Claudia. There's this Albert Einstein quote I think about a lot. You cannot solve a problem with the same mindset that created it. It seems like the Homer team is really taking that to heart. They're investing in a new workforce model for rural America that relies on technology and non-physician providers to do tasks that truly don't require an MD. With the graying of America and the shrinking of available caretakers, we'll be constantly asking, in rural America, but also beyond, what tasks can technology do better and cheaper than a human? And we'll also be asking, where do we absolutely need to embrace human touch and relationships in healing? This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore-Kloss. Check out the show notes for more information about Shani Schneider and her company, Homeward. There is more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams.